you've got a Bible, we're going to go to the book of James chapter 1 this morning and continue on in our series through the epistle of James. Uh, we introduced it a couple weeks ago uh, as one of the letters, one of the two letters in the New Testament that was written by one of the brothers of Jesus. Or if we want to be a little bit more accurate, a half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mom. Jesus kind of had his own dad uh, going on. But um, James, uh, interesting enough, this, this whole story that we kind of messed with a couple weeks ago, like he has now come to worship as God the guy that he once shared bunk beds with. <laughs> Something significant happened in Jesus and James' relationship to where now James, later on in his life, as one of the founders of the early Christian community in Jerusalem, is writing this letter of wisdom that's teaching followers of Jesus at all places and all times what it looks like to live a life wholly devoted to God. And so one of the main themes throughout the book of James is that the goal of Christian life is to become mature or complete. He uses that phrase seven different times throughout the letter. And he's essentially imagining a world in which Christians look like Christ. Wouldn't that be great? If Christians were actually Christ-like, he's imagining a Christianity where what we believe and what we confess is in alignment with the way that we live and show up in the world. And so in this chapter, he gives us this really good news that in this goal that we have as disciples of Jesus to be brought into complete maturity or completion in our faith, that we are not alone in that journey. And it doesn't rest squarely upon our shoulders, but that God is actively involved in the formation of his people. And that he is using this classroom called life to help us become mature and complete in Jesus. And so we know that a life of discipleship to Christ requires much from us. It requires us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow after him. But we also, I think, tend to forget that Jesus is the one who's discipling us, right? That we have the best teacher in the world when it comes to learning to master the art of being human. We are training under the true master. His job is to teach us and our job is to be teachable and to learn. And so this morning, we're going to look at some of the dynamics involved in that relationship, the teacher-student relationship, the master-disciple relationship that we are in with Christ. And we're going to look at how this classroom called our lives is perfectly designed to give us every opportunity to become the people that God has created and redeemed us to be for his glory, for our joy, and for the good of the world. So that's what we're talking about uh, this morning. It's a huge chunk that we're not going to be able to unpack every single part of in depth, but we're going to look at some of the main themes. So we'll start with verses 2 through 4 in James chapter 1. You can turn there if you have a Bible. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be, here's those words, mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so again, this end goal of discipleship is to be formed into the image of Christ 
spiritual maturity, completeness, wholeness. And the process that God is using to help us pursue that goal is going to be marked by a series of tests or trials throughout our lives. God uses tests and trials to develop us into the image of Jesus. And James uses this language repeatedly throughout this passage and throughout the book, that life will be marked by trials, troubles, tribulations, and tests, and that God is going to use those for his glory and for our joy to form us into people who look more like Jesus. And it's not just James's idea, but if you actually pay attention to the story of God and his people as it's contained within the scripture, you'll find that there's over 200 stories of God using tests and trials to develop and strengthen the faith of both individuals and groups of his people. And when you see that, it changes not only the way that you read the Bible, it changes the way that you understand your life and the way you understand the nature of your discipleship and relationship to Christ. That he is actively using the classroom of our life, including troubles and trials, to develop us into people who bear his image. And so notice that he doesn't say, if you face trials, he says, when. It's not an if, it is a when. And all of us know that, that life doesn't always go smoothly. It doesn't always go, to go, go according to plan. It's not always easy. There will be troubles, trials, and tribulations along the way. When your health is failing, when you lose your job, when your family's falling apart, when he leaves you, when she cheats on you, when your faith is rattled, when you strike out, when your bank account is empty, James says, when you face trials of many kinds, you can consider that pure joy, which sounds crazy to most of us, totally counterintuitive, totally countercultural, to embrace the disappointments and struggles of life and call that a good thing. And for many of us, It's confusing when we first hear this idea that God uses tests to develop our faith. That doesn't sound like good news. We have this picture maybe of a really insecure God who wants to make sure that we really love him and are really committed to him. So he devises these traps or these schemes or these tests to make us prove that we really will be loyal or loving to him. But we know that's not the picture at all. When it comes to the topic of tests, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is school. And I hated school ever since. My kids love going to school, and it blows my mind. I can't even imagine that. Every single day from kindergarten through 12th grade, I dreaded going to school. And one of the worst things about school was taking tests. I just absolutely uh, hated it. Even today, every once in a while, I'll have a bad dream where I'll wake up and realize I was dreaming about showing up for class in high school and not realizing there was a test that day and being totally unprepared. And this is 20 years later. So I hated tests. I know some some of you guys like them. I've met people that really enjoy tests, and they're crazy people. But uh, for most of us, it's not our idea of a good time. But something happened in my life a few years ago that actually changed the way I thought about tests in general, and even more specifically, the fact that God uses tests to develop Christ in us. And so again, uh, graduated from high school about 20 years ago, and um, when I was a senior in high school, I was the drummer in a band that had just gotten signed to a record deal, 
And we were making arrangements to spend the second half of my senior year uh, on the road, an international tour. And um, I was going to, this was like really before the internet was much of a thing. So I was going to finish up high school from the back of the tour bus uh, doing correspondence classes while we traveled around the world uh, playing music. And so um, that was the plan, and I was stoked. It was a lifelong dream for me to be a, to be a drummer and uh, to make a, make a living playing music, and it happened when I was 17. Um, the day before we were going to leave to launch this tour, I broke my arm in a skateboarding accident. In a strange cocktail of my own stupidity and God's sovereignty, I thought it'd be a good idea to pull a Michael J. Fox on the back of my mom's Suburban, if you remember Back to the Future. And I thought that she saw me back there holding onto her bumper, and she took off down the road and gunned it and got going way too fast. I held on way too long, developed the death wobble, if you've ever been on a skateboard going too fast, ended up falling head over heels and busting my elbow. And so that night, the whole band came uh, to the urgent care uh, clinic and were there when the doctor said, I, I won't be able to play drums for at least three months. And so long story short, the band left on tour without me. They went on, recorded their debut album, um, did really well, played huge shows all over the world. Um, And I was left in Philomath, Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) And since I had a record deal, I hadn't taken the SATs. I hadn't applied for college. I hadn't made any plans other than being a rock star. And uh, if you can imagine, at 17, it was the most devastating thing that had ever happened to me. I remember going to a huge festival up in the gorge, 60,000 people standing in the middle of the crowd watching my band, my old band, uh, play. And uh, I had a diploma from Flumwith High School, so that was cool. But uh, (laughs) um, by the way, it's not as cool of a story as you think. It was a Christian ska band. So... um, (laughs) I like to say we all have sketchy pasts, right? Sex, drugs, Christian ska, things that we're not super proud of. Um, but for a moment, it was a, it was a pretty devastating thing. And so um, at that point, I had, like I said, no college plans and had barely graduated high school, um, but kind of stumbled into a ministry gig at a tiny little church uh, in Philomath. And um, they heard I was a musician out of work, and I had like piercings and blue hair and leather, and they were like 40 lumberjacks sitting in a little white steepled church. And, uh, but they offered me $500 a month to lead worship on Sundays. And so um, started doing that, and then they said, hey, we've got some high schoolers and middle schoolers in the church, like five or six. Would you be willing to do a little Bible study for them? And so I started doing that on Monday nights, leading a little Bible study. And eventually that little Bible study began to grow. And as I started teaching the Bible and kids started inviting their friends, um, it grew from about five kids to 100 within a year with most of those kids coming to faith and being baptized for the first time. And it was about that point, a year into it, where I realized maybe God's dream for my life wasn't for me to be a Christian ska star, um, but maybe he's called me into something else. Now, it's not as crazy as it sounds in that my dad was a pastor, my grandpa was a pastor, my great-grandpa was a pastor, my other great-grandpa was a pastor. It's kind of the family business, and it's not anything I actually ever planned on doing, but it's just sort of what I stumbled into, and it came really naturally and found that I... Um, took great joy in teaching God's word, in developing disciples, 
and in shepherding God's flock. And so I did that at that church for six years. Uh, then I moved to another church and did college ministry for a couple years. And then after that, uh, Jen and I got married and we went back to Corvallis and planted our church there. Um, so about 10 years into full-time vocational ministry, I found myself starting really to desire some formal theological, biblical, and ministry training. Basically what you would get at seminary. Um, the problem is that I didn't have an undergrad. And so I decided to reach out anyways to the seminary I really wanted to go to in Portland and explain my situation and see if there was any options, even just auditing courses or something like that. And the dean, when I met with him that day, said there's a very small number of students that we're able to admit each year into our graduate programs who don't have an undergrad. He said, and the way you do that is by taking this test. <laughs> and that test is called the GRE, if any of you have applied for grad school. Um, it's basically like the SAT, but for everything you were supposed to learn in college. Right? So it's divided into the verbal and the math side of things. And, um, and he said, if you take this test and do well enough, we'll let you in uh, to the seminary. Um, now, as much as I have always hated tests, for the very first time when he said, there is a test you can take that will allow you into our program, that actually sounded like good news. Right? It sounded like a way for me to pursue my dreams and follow my heart and uh, even though it wasn't going to be fun or enjoyable, um, there's actually a test that allows me to do the thing that I really want to do. And so I, for six months, devoted four hours every day to studying for the GRE. And I was already pretty strong in verbal and writing just from being a pastor and that sort of thing. Um, math, on the other hand, the, those last... 15 years had confirmed all my suspicions from high school that math's not something you actually need in the real world. And um, my apologies to those of you that do that kind of thing, but in my line of work. And so I taught myself college algebra, trigonometry, geometry, um, data evaluation, that kind of thing, and crammed for this test, ended up uh, getting Ivy League scores on the verbal side, Arizona state level scores on the math side, <laughs> but uh, did well enough to get into the program. And uh, so started seminary, four years later graduated with a master's in theology. And it all started with this test that I was presented with. Now, I didn't have to take the test. If I wasn't committed to going to seminary and continuing my theological education, I could have just kept going. But there was something that I really wanted, something that I was really uh, motivated to move towards and to give my life to. And there happened to be a test that would allow me to chase after my dreams. And so the whole point of this story is that when we have deep desires and dreams for who we want to be and what we want to do with our lives, sometimes instead of bad news, a test can be really good news. It, be it can become a pathway forward for us to pursue the life and do the things that we never would be able to do otherwise. And when you think about it through that lens, what James is saying here doesn't sound so ridiculous. It doesn't sound so counterintuitive anymore. 
when he says that we should rejoice in all trials and in all tests, it sounds crazy when we think about it as just the bad things that are going to happen to us. But if we understand that God's dream for our life is to form us into a people who bear the image of his son, that God's desire for us is to help us see how deeply we are loved by him and to live in that love and to live out that love as his people in the world. If our goal in discipleship and in our life is to become mature and complete in Jesus, then it changes the way we greet the tests, trials, tribulations, and troubles of this world. They actually have the potential to become a source of joy for you. And so it's not that tests are enjoyable in and of themselves. It's not that doing the GRE was fun for me, but it actually became an opportunity for me to chase after God's dream for my life. And that in and of itself is the thing that we rejoice in. And so tests can be incredibly discouraging, disappointing, even devastating. But we can rejoice during times of trial because we know that this is how Jesus disciples his people, and he always has. And so Christians are people who are able to greet life's difficult moments and circumstances with joy rather than fear. And even though it's hard, we're able to face those trials, face those trials with faith. Now, one of the potential downfalls to this kind of culture is that wouldn't it create an environment where it's not okay to not be okay? If we're supposed to rejoice in all trials and in all difficulties, then wouldn't that create a church environment where we always have to pretend that we're doing all right? Where we always have to put a smile on and maintain the appearance that, yeah, I'm happy, life is hard, but God is good. And we end up being BS people, right? In fact, this isn't even just within Christianity. I think this is even something the culture around us has observed about Christianity. I was doing a wedding last night up at Elk Lake, and it was kind of a rough crowd. And when I went and sat down at a... Uh, at a particular table, everybody around kind of straightened up and realized the pastor was there, right? And they start apologizing for their language and putting their drinks under the table and, and that sort of thing. And this, I'm so used to that. It's my whole life. Um, but isn't it interesting that even non-Christians have learned enough about Christianity that when they're in presence of a Christian, they know that they're supposed to pretend to be better than they are. In fact, I just heard the story of a youth pastor who's, they had just had a kid and the baby was not sleeping well at night and the youth pastor, this wasn't Jarrell, this is a different one, but um, <laughs> the youth pastor showed up on a Sunday morning and was kind of greeting people and um, somebody came up to the youth pastor and said, hey, how's it going? And the youth pastor said, oh, I'm just so tired. And uh, his senior pastor pulled him aside afterwards and said, they don't need to know that. Just, just tell them everything's great. Right? Um, usually it's not that explicit, 
But we do understand that there is a temptation or a tendency to take this concept that Christians should always be joyful even in the midst of hard circumstances and, and allow that to turn into something that's full of hypocrisy and phoniness and mask wearing and that sort of thing. Is that the kind of culture James is imagining where we're pretending to be joyful? where we're hiding from our problems, where we're sweeping them under the rug. That's not what he's saying at all. In fact, what's the word that he uses? Whenever you face trials of many kinds, not avoid, not ignore, not hide, not sweep under the rug, face them, look at them, name them, own them. Acknowledge that God has allowed these trials and tribulations in your life for a reason. And in fact, the worst thing you can do is waste those tests by pretending they don't exist. And so this doesn't create a BS people. This creates an honest people and a community where it's okay to not be okay. To know that we all at different times will endure seasons of struggle and suffer and disappointment and trouble. And yet we cling to Christ as our hope and as our joy even in the midst of it. And so I would sum it up with a, uh, <clears throat> a lyric from one of my favorite songwriters, David Bazan, where he says, count it a blessing that you're such a failure because your second chance may never have come. So in verses 2 through 12, James uses this word, trials and testing, several different times. He uses them synonymously. And then when we get to verse 13 in this passage, the translation changes the word to tempted. But interesting enough, in the original Greek, the word for testing and temptation are actually the same word. But I think the translators did this because there's a different kind of, there's, there's some nuance here that he's trying to communicate. So starting in verse 13, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is, has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Okay, and so there's this um, similarity between testing and trials and temptation, so much so that the Greek language really has the same word, but in the translation they understand that there is some nuance and some difference between being tested and being tempted. It was fascinating, several weeks ago, when we were journeying through the Lord's Prayer together, we got to that line where Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you remember, our friend from Portland, Michelle Jones, was here uh, preaching on that passage. And she did a wonderful job of kind of, exer uh, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Bringing apart these two pictures of, of temptation and testing. Um, what was really interesting was the very next day after Michelle preached that sermon, um, the Pope changed that line in the Lord's Prayer. And it was international news. And it wasn't something he did flippantly, but after, I think, 15 years of research and of Catholic theologians um, really wrestling with the text of the Lord's Prayer, uh, Pope Francis decided that it hadn't been translated very well. And the idea is that when we pray, 
lead us not into temptation, that it actually contradicts what James writes here when it says that God can, does not tempt anybody. And so Pope Francis changed it to, don't let us fall into temptation. It's the idea that God doesn't tempt anybody. God's the one who keeps us um, from temptation. And I trust that he did it in, in, in an attempt to be more faithful to what the scriptures say. Um, but I haven't heard anybody else talk about this. Here's what's so fascinating to me. In the version of the Lord's Prayer that we have had for 2,000 years, when it says, lead us not into temptation, Jesus is telling us to pray that God does not lead us into temptation. He's not saying that God does. He's saying for us to petition God not to. And if you look at the rest of the Lord's Prayer, when we say, Lord, give us today our daily bread, that is something God does. Lord, forgive us our sins, that is something God does. Lord, don't lead us into temptation, that is something God doesn't do. So I don't think we need to change the Bible. We just need to pay attention to what, uh, to what it is that Jesus is trying to accomplish. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> so, here's the connection between the two. That every test has the potential to become a temptation. The test f- comes from God, but the temptation comes from within us. God will use tests in our lives but he's not the one who would ever tempt us to sin. And when we start talking about sin, as James does in the last part of this passage, for many of us, and especially in our modern world, it seems like a really primitive and outdated idea that there's this naughty list of things that God doesn't want people to do, and if you do them, you're bad and go to hell. That's not how the Bible talks about sin. It talks about it as a disease, It talks about it as an infection. It talks about sin um, permeating not only our lives, but our world. If you don't believe in sin, just look at the news, right? Every single day, more stories of evil, wickedness, devastation, terrorism, racism, whatever it is. All of that has its roots in this disease called sin, and it doesn't seem to matter how hard any of us try to change the world. It doesn't matter who's in office or whether Democrats or Republicans are in control. It's like the sin is never reduced or managed. The world is full of this sin and of this evil, and it's also within us. And so every trial has the potential to become a temptation. And the way he lays this out is that either it will lead us towards, the trial will lead us towards life in verse 12, or it will lead us towards death in verse 15. Every trial has the potential to lead us towards the life of Jesus or to the death that's in the world. Now, here's what's fascinating. When we think about trials and tests, all of us immediately go to the troubles and the lowly and the unpleasant circumstances within our lives. The stuff we talked about earlier. Marriage problems, professional problems, 
relationship problems, spiritual problems, health problems. And all of those do have potential to be tests God would use to form Christ in us. But there's something else even more shocking that James says here, and it starts in verse 9. He says in James 1.9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. Okay, so he's using the metaphor of financial poverty and wealth. But it's not limited to simply finances. We also have spiritual poverty and wealth, relational poverty and wealth, all different forms. And what he says is that both poverty and wealth, and specifically a transition in your life from one to the other, they're both forms of tests that God wants to use to form us. So if you are somebody who had been living in poverty and then you come into some money, that's a test. And if you are somebody who had a successful and comfortable life and then you lose it all, that's also a test. So every adversity, but also every prosperity is a test that can make you wiser or it can lead you into temptation. So transitions are a huge part of how Jesus disciples his people. And the wise person is going to learn to pay attention to the transitions throughout our lives. From living at home with your parents to going off to college, huge transition that a bunch of you are about to make. From being a single person to being a married person, huge transition. From being a married couple to having a kid and becoming a family, huge transition. Career transitions, relationship transitions, financial transitions, even transitions internally of this habit or this lifestyle that has marked my life. I'm transitioning to a new lifestyle. Anytime there's a change in our circumstances or in our existence, that is a test. It's an opportunity for us either to grow wiser and more Christ-like or to be tempted towards sin. We will never be the same. So the truth is we need to understand this, that there is no such thing as a stagnant Christian. There is no such thing as a stalled out Christian. There's no such thing as a Christian in neutral. That we are either moving towards life or we are moving towards death. We are either growing in Christ-likeness or we are chasing after the evil desires of our hearts. The theologian Christopher Beeley says it like this, We will never meet someone who lives a static existence. People are either growing toward God or away from God. There is no fixed middle position. And so whether you lose love or you find it, whether you get promoted or you get fired, whether you graduate or you flunk out, whether you get rich or you get poor, Each of those trials is an opportunity 
for your faith to be developed, or for you to turn from God. So think about if you strike it rich, however you do, you sell your company, and you do well, you come into money through an inheritance, you work your way up, get promoted, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a different socioeconomic status than you had been. That's a test. You can either let that wealth humble you and go, oh man, I can't believe there's so many people that deserve this more than I do. In humility. And you can allow it to make you generous that now I have means, now I have some, some margin, I'm able to love and to serve and to give away more money than I ever thought. And you could allow it to make you become a grateful person. I'm so thankful for everything that God has blessed me with. That's one way that that test of coming into money could go. Or it could go another way, and it could lead to temptation to become arrogant, to become prideful, to become greedy, to become boastful and less generous. The riches have the tendency to tempt us into believing that luxuries are necessities. So either it can make you humble and wise or it can make you greedy and arrogant, but that transitional moment in your life will not keep you the same. You will become a different person to one degree or another from that point on. Now, the same thing can happen with adversity, right? That if you have a bunch of money and have a bunch of stuff and have a bunch of power or influence or success or whatever and you lose it, that also can cause you to become humble, to become compassionate, to become an empathetic person. Or it can cause you to fall into the temptation towards being bitter or resentful or angry. So every transition, every, not just the major, but especially the major shifts in our life, in our identity, in our relationships, in our status, in our existence. A wise person will learn to acknowledge that these are pivotal moments in our discipleship. And whether it's a pleasant transition that is enjoyable or a devastating transition that's really hard, as followers of Jesus, we greet them with joy, trusting that God is going to use these moments to form the image of his son in us. Many of you know and have been praying for my mother-in-law, Jen's mom, Sharon, who several years ago was diagnosed with stage 3C uh, cancer and um, went through surgery a couple years ago, had everything removed, went through chemo, and uh, just about a year ago, they, they uh, weren't ready to say she was totally cancer-free, but they couldn't find any. It was a major answer to prayer that we celebrated as a family. Um, and then about three months ago, on one of her regular checkups, they found that it's back. And um, the worst part was that um, my in-laws were supposed to come to Israel with us. And uh, they had planned to come on our Israel trip. And then from there, they had just retired. And we had a three-month trip planned around Europe, kind of trip of a lifetime sort of thing. In fact, they were supposed to be at Wimbledon uh, this week. And uh, the news of the cancer returning came the day, two, two days before Israel. And so they had to cancel the whole trip, the whole thing. They were going to move here to Bend. 
Um, and instead, they have to move back to Canada um, for their doctors and health care and that sort of thing. So that moment, that day when that diagnosis comes and it says your cell count is up, the cancer is back. Um, some of you have lived through that. Some of you have lived through that several times um, or different versions of it. And you know that is a life-changing moment and you will never be the same from there. And so, as a family, for the last several months, we've been walking together through a really difficult journey of facing the reality um, that Nana, as my kids call her, she's 59, um, young and healthy otherwise, um, we don't know what's going to happen, and it's not looking good. And every Wednesday night, as an extended family, we have a time of prayer, often over Skype or something like that. And um, Jen has been going up to Canada about once a, once a month to spend time with her mom, to sit with her as she goes through chemo and that sort of thing. And um, we don't know where this is going to go, um, but we do, starting with my in-laws and, and the whole family, understand that this is a significant test or trial and that the main thing that's important to God in all of our lives is that he wants to use this difficult trial to help form greater faith, deeper love, and more Jesus in all of us. Right? Now, that doesn't mean we're not sad. It doesn't mean we don't cry. It doesn't mean we're not scared. But here's what's interesting. Had her results three months ago been clear and free, then she showed up that day and the doctor said, cancer's gone, you're good to go, go to Wimbledon. That also is a trial. That also is a test. What are you going to do now with this good news? How are you going to steward your life now, realizing that you've been given extra years on this earth, so to speak? How are you going to respond to the, to the news of a, of a clean bill of health? How's that going to cause you to see others in suffering and to, to, to uh, steward what days and resources you do have left? So you see, either way is a trial. Obviously, one is much, much harder, but both are opportunities for us to grow in the image of Jesus. Oh, man. This is a long chunk of scripture here. So, um, let me just point out one thing. I won't even go into depth, but I think it's a really fascinating observation at the end of this chunk. Notice in verses uh, 15... Um, in 14 through 15, James uses a sexual metaphor or reproductive, at the very least, to describe the way that temptation and sin works. He, how do trials turn into temptations in our lives? And so the word that he uses first is that we are enticed by our evil desires. Enticed would also be uh, translated seduced. So our evil desires, our desires for things other than God, become seduction to us. And then what happens? From seduction, there's a conception. After, then after desire has conceived, so the, the temptation to sin becomes rooted within us and it has the potential to become something that, that comes out of us. 
So if you think about Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, yeah, murder and adultery are sin, but those are actually just the things that have been given birth to by lust and anger that were already conceived in you. So there's seduction, there's conception, and he says then it gives birth to sin, and sin even has a grandchild in this case. When it's full grown, it gives birth to death. What an interesting picture. And all I would say is that James means this as a pastoral warning. Pay attention to your hearts. Pay attention to your desires. Not just trying to modify and control your behavior so that you can sin less, but actually do the hard work of asking God to seek your heart, to do the inventory of desire and affection, and ask, what is the thing that I really want? What is the thing that I really crave, that I really want more than anything? And the result of that question is going to shape our lives. And so the question for us is not what is our strongest desire because that is the thing that often leads to sin and death. The question for us is what is my deepest desire? What do I really want? And I'm convinced that for those of us who are in Christ, we've been given the Holy Spirit, we've been united with Jesus and born again, given a new heart, something that has already been made true about us is the fact that our deepest desire is for Jesus. We want him. We want to be with him. We want to know him. We want to be like him. That's not always our strongest desire, but I believe that is our deepest desire, whether we tend to it or not. One last verse. Romans 8.28 is a verse that's been thrown around for many years in those moments of trouble, trial, and tribulation. Right? I know early on as a kid, when I, when I was disappointed or frustrated or whatever it was, various well-meaning people would come to me and say, you know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So it's saying even though life is hard, even though you're struggling, even though you're frustrated or disappointed, you can take faith in knowing that God is going to work all things for the good. Now that is good news and that is true. But the question is, what is the good? Does good mean it's all going to work out really well in the end? Does good mean she's not going to die? Does good mean I'm going to have everything that I used to have? That I'm going to be comfortable? That life's going to be easy? That's obviously not what good means. When I share Romans 8.28, I also share the next verse. Romans 8, 29, Paul defines good. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What's the good? It's that we become like Jesus. Not that life is easy or things go well or even the way we want them to. It's that in all things, in all trials, in adversity and in prosperity, God is faithful to use those things to form us into the image of Christ. He's teaching us. He's discipling us. He's leading us. He's fathering us. 
And our job is to be teachable. Our job is to learn. Our job is to pay attention, to seek wisdom, and tend to our deepest desire, which is for Jesus to be with him and to be like him. And I guarantee that if we're able to enter into the world with that kind of mentality and that kind of position of the heart, that you will find yourself greeting trials of all kinds with joy. Because God is faithful, and he is good, and will work all things together to help you and all of us together bear the image of Christ more faithfully and joyfully in the world. We stand and pray for me? No, for me. Please, you know what? I'll take it if you want to pray for me. I meant pray with me, but I need to be prayed for as much as anybody. <laughs> Lord Christ, we come to this table this morning in gratitude and in joy, knowing that you are faithfully discipling us, that you are leading us deeper into your life. And that there are so many opportunities, even for those of us here today that are struggling badly, that are hurting deeply, that each of those is an opportunity for you to advance your mission in our lives and hearts. And so I pray that you would find in us a receptive people, a faithful people, a people who would tend to our deepest desires instead of our strongest desires. And I pray that you would use whatever difficulties and circumstances we are facing in this room today for the sake of your glory and our joy and the good of the world. So we come to this table receiving you in faith again, inviting you into the messy places of our lives and trusting that you are with us and that you're working all things together. In Jesus' name.